Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I'm trying to free your mind, Neo, but I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome everyone to the Origins Podcast. This is your host Paul and this is episode 167. Today's podcast is entitled Horses Had Stripes Like Zebras. In case you thought nature was all about cute fuzzy animals and sweet-smelling flowers, here's a swimming spider that eats fish and frogs. From the iflscience.com website. An article by Ben Torb. A new species of fish-eating spider discovered in Australia. Endemic to freshwater streams in Queensland, Australia, the semi-aquatic arachnid was recently discovered close to Brisbane, before being presented this week at the World Science Festival, which is being held in the city. Describing how the new species attacks its prey, Robert Raven of the Queensland Museum told Mashable Australia that these spiders sit there on the water, then all of a sudden an insect will hit the water, and the spider races out to get it, grabs it, dives under the water, and then swims back to the shore and starts eating it. Known as Dolomedes Greenii, the spider spends most of its time lurking on the banks of rivers in search of small waves caused by insects hitting the water, and has been named in honour of World Science Festival coordinator Brian Green. Commenting on the discovery, Green said, With the announcement last month of humankind's first detection of gravitational waves, ripples on the surface of space and time, I am particularly honoured to be so closely associated with a spider that has its own deep affinity for waves. Capable of eating cane toads, tadpoles, frogs and fish up to three or four times its own size, 
The spider is in fact one of many species of arachnid known to prey on aquatic and amphibious animals. A paper that appeared in the journal PLOS One in 2014 documented the existence of numerous semi-aquatic fish-eating arachnids, which it claims are geographically widespread, occurring on all continents except Antarctica. According to the study, these spiders are able to kill prey up to five times their own body size thanks to the use of powerful poisons with the average prey being 2.2 times the length of the predator. Despite being roughly the size of a human palm, Dolomedes bryangrenii is not thought to present any threat to people. And from the mobile.abc.net.au website, Rare fairy circles discovered near Newman in Western Australia. And this is written by Rachel Sullivan. The chance discovery of fairy circles in West Australia's Pilbara region is providing new insight into one of nature's enduring puzzles. The circles which are regularly spaced patches of bare soil that form in uniform hexagonal patterns throughout arid grasslands had until recently only been confirmed in Namibia in southwestern Africa. But in 2014, a fairy circle expert, Dr. Stefan Getson from the Helmholtz Centre for Environmental Research, was alerted to the presence of similar rings in vegetation 15 kilometres to the east to southeast of Newman in the Pilbara by Australian environmental scientist and study co-author Dr. Bronwyn Bell. Many theories have been raised over the years about how the mysterious patterns form in arid areas. But the latest research has indicated plants were organising themselves according to the scarce water availability. Dr Todd Erickinson from the Restoration Seed Bank Initiative at the University of Western Australia said the strange pattern was very visible when flying into the small mining town. When viewed from above, Groups of fairy circles form repeating hexagonal shapes, with six bare patches about four metres in diameter spaced about ten metres away from each other around a central focal point to form the points of the hexagon. You don't see them from the ground, said Dr Erickson, another study author who has been working in the Pilbara for the last eight years. You can be standing inside a fairy circle and not see the next one ten metres away To find them, you need to spot them from the air. People have known about the circles for years, but no one with the skills of Stefan have actually gone out there and actually mapped them from the landscape scale. Analysis of aerial photographs and spatial patterns of vegetation by the team, published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, revealed Australian and African fairy circles are almost identical despite being more than 10,000 kilometres apart. There are a number of hypotheses about how these enigmatic patterns in arid areas may have formed. One hypothesis is that ants or insects nibbled away at the plant's roots. Another hypothesis suggests the circles are caused by underground bubbles of carbon monoxide rising to the surface. But researchers said the latest study indicated the fairy circles in the Pilbara were formed by plants organising themselves in response to scarce water resources.
an analysis of the temperature and permeability of the soil indicated that water flowed across the hard-baked patches of soil to where spinifex grasses grew at the edge. Our soil analysis revealed that there are strong infiltration contrasts between vegetation areas and bare soil gaps with hard soil crusts, Dr Getson said. The vegetation kept the surface cooler and soil looser at the edge of the circle, so water could permeate further and more plants could colonise the area. Spatial mapping of the area by Dr Getson and his team ruled out insect activity. Unlike Namibia, where a number of species of insects are found in fairy circles, the majority of fairy circles in the Pilbara did not have any ant nests or termite mounds. Any nests and mounds they did find were randomly distributed. That rules out ant or insect activity as the driving pattern, because the ant hills and termite mounds are irregular, while fairy circles are extremely regular, Dr Erickson said. Dr Getson said the results supported current thinking in dryland ecological research. Ecologists are increasingly realising that distinct vegetation patterns are a population-level consequence of competition for scarce water, he said. Dr Getson said it was exciting to discover a new and mysterious natural phenomena like fairy circles. Today, scientists mostly find very small animals, such as a new insect or amphibian species in the rainforest, cryptic deep-sea animals, or a new galaxy in outer space, he said. Discoveries like the Australian fairy circles are extremely rare, which makes the current study tremendously exciting. Dr Getson added the area around Newman seems to be an ideal place for such finds. Just 35 kilometres north of Newman, a previously unknown meteorite crater, the Hickman Crater, was identified using Google Earth in 2007, he said. This illustrates the great potential of the remote Australian outback for new discoveries. And continuing our little run on Australian stories. This one's by Imogen Brennan, and it's from the mobile.abc.net.au website also. Bones from ancestor of giant duck discovered in Australia. An ancestor of the largest bird that ever lived on Earth has been discovered in Australia. The Dromornus murrayi, a distant relative of the duck, could grow to weigh as much as 250 kilograms. Now its 26 million year old bones have been discovered in northwest Queensland. Australian paleontologists said it eventually evolved into the world's largest bird, the Dromornus sturtoni, which could grow to a massive 650 kilograms. The Dromornus murrayi had feathers tiny wings, a wide beak, and was vegetarian. But despite having a very big body and head, the size of its brain was less grandiose. Its brain was minuscule, said Trevor Worthy, a research paleontologist at Flinders University and the lead author of the paper. I mean, if a chicken was silly, 
These things were very much more silly, he said. We know, for instance, that its wings were already reduced down to something that was maybe only 10 or 15 centimetres long in total. So you wouldn't have even known it had a wing if you saw this bird, because it would have been completely buried in the plumage. It was one and a half metres high at the back and probably weighed 250 kilograms. So it was a giant bird, even though it was the baby of its family. Mr Worthy said the bird progressed in an evolutionary sense through a couple of species before becoming Dromorna sturtoni. He is unsure how the species came to its end. This particular one might have well just changed through time into another species, because the group has probably been around in Australia for the last 60 million years at least, Mr Worthy said. The study published in the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology was a collaboration with Professor Susan Hand and Professor Mike Archer from the University of New South Wales, who have both been involved in fossil excavation for 40 years. Professor Hand and Professor Archer found the bones at Riversley in northwest Queensland. The fossil deposits there are so extraordinary, David Attenborough described it as one of the foremost important fossil deposits in the world, Professor Archer said. We hit what we could describe as a shelf. It was a very bone-rich layer, and it was in that layer that we found this skull. They are so good, and when you section these things, or if you actually look at the detail under a microscope, the fine structure of the bone is all there. We think there's going to be more that's going to turn up about this animal. Despite its hellish conditions today, Venus may have once been a welcoming world. It's just a bit smaller than Earth, and if water arrived at both planets the same way, Venus could have once hosted oceans on its surface. At some point, however, its atmosphere took off in a runaway greenhouse effect, and now surface temperatures are hot enough to melt lead. From the smithsonianmag.com website. An article by Noel Taylor read A giant planetary smash-up may have turned Venus hot and hellish. Planetary scientists have been trying to figure out what happened to poor Venus to trigger this dramatic transformation. Now simulations have offered an intriguing, if still very early, theory. Venus developed its stifling atmosphere following a collision with a Texas-sized object. Cedric Gilman of the Royal Observatory of Belgium and his colleagues simulated what would happen if various-sized objects crashed into Venus. They found that immediate effects, such as blowing part of the atmosphere into space, made only small changes that the planet could quickly recover from. But a significant impact 
could have driven deep changes within the mantle that could have changed the geology and atmosphere of the planet over hundreds of millions of years, especially if it occurred when Venus was relatively young. There are some periods of time when a large impact can be enough to switch a cool surface to a hot surface and change the history of the planet, Gilman says. According to their models, if a spherical object between 500 and 1,000 miles wide hit Venus, energy from the colliding object would have heated the upper mantle enough to melt it. That melted portion would have risen to the surface, spreading into a long, shallow layer just beneath the crust. Water and carbon dioxide within the mantle could then be released to the surface as gases which would have caused a significant shift in the planet's atmosphere. If Venus suffered an impact early enough in its lifetime, water released from the mantle could have then been stripped away by the stronger solar wind streaming from a more active young sun, leaving behind a drier planet. With the bulk of the planet's water pulled from the mantle earlier on, little would be left to become trapped in the atmosphere once solar activity calmed down. The resulting dense atmosphere, rich in carbon dioxide, would help to dramatically heat the planet, the team reports in the April issue of Icarus. A large collision is going to affect not just the formation of large craters on the surface, but it may also affect the atmosphere through a range of processes, says Simone Marchi of the Southwest Research Institute in Colorado, who was not involved in the research. The new study focuses on an effect that perhaps has not been fully investigated in the past. What happens precisely to the internal evolution of the planet? Impacts of objects of this size are rare. According to other studies, bodies roughly the size of the dwarf planet Ceres, which is 590 miles wide, crash into planets approximately once into their lifetime. Larger objects are even rarer. No such impacts should have happened in the last three billion years or so, Gilman says. Still, we know that the early solar system went through a period called the Late Heavy Bombardment, when fragments of protoplanets smashed into rocky worlds near the Sun, leaving scores of craters. And there's plenty of evidence Earth suffered a significant collision in its youth. Scientists think that a Mars-sized body slammed into our planet carving out the material that formed the moon. So why didn't Earth wind up with the super greenhouse effect? The colliding object is estimated to be far larger, around 4,000 miles wide. Such a drastic impact would have completely removed and reformed Earth's surface, essentially allowing it to be reset. On Venus, however, the crust would have remained intact, with only a small portion of the mantle allowed to leak out into the planet's atmosphere. If a massive impact really did scar Venus enough to change its atmosphere, other effects aren't readily apparent. The planet's surface is fairly young, covered up with lava that could have come from an impact or from its once active volcanoes. But there are more indirect clues. The planet has a strangely slow rotation, a day on Venus is longer than its year, and it spins backwards compared to the rest of the planets in the solar system. Previous studies have suggested that Venus's strange spin could have been caused by a major impact, 
Still, a significant impactor isn't the only way to heat up the planet's atmosphere. Volcanoes erupting over the course of billions of years could also have funnelled carbon dioxide from the mantle to the surface, heating the planet over its history. Marchi adds that he would like to have seen more detailed estimates on the amounts and composition of the gases removed from the various collisions, factors which would depend on when in the history of the planet an impact occurred. This is a very fundamental process, not just for Venus, but for all the terrestrial planets, he says. One of the biggest difficulties in creating more detailed models comes from the fact that we have very little data to work with. While Mars has received a slew of robotic visitors over the past 40 years, Earth's evil twin has garnered much less attention. At the moment, we simply do not have a lot of information on the history of Venus, which could help us find out evidence of an impact, Gilman says. We hope that further missions and observations could find some areas which could be older. A meteor collision on February the 1st, 1943, between a B-17 and a German fighter over the Tunistock area, became the subject of one of the most famous photographs of World War II. An enemy fighter attacking a 97th bomb group formation went out of control, probably with a wounded pilot, then continued its crashing descent into the rear of the fuselage of a fortress named All-American piloted by Lieutenant Kendrick R. Bragg of the 414th Bomb Squadron. When it struck, the fighter broke apart, but left some pieces in the B-17. From the warhistoryonline.com website World War II B-17 Survival Story Virtually cut in half by a mid-air collision with a German fighter, it got the crew home. The left horizontal stabiliser of the fortress and left elevator were completely torn away. The two right engines were out and one on the left had a serious oil pump leak. The vertical fin and the rudder had been damaged. The fuselage had been almost cut completely through, connected only at two small parts of the frame, and the radios, electrical and oxygen systems were damaged. There was also a hole in the top that was over 16 feet long and 4 feet wide at its widest, and the split in the fuselage went all the way to the top of the gunner's turret. Although the tail actually bounced and swayed in the wind, and twisted when the plane turned, and all the control cables were severed, except one single elevator cable that still worked, the aircraft still flew, miraculously. The tail gunner was trapped because there was no floor connecting the tail to the rest of the plane. The waist and tail gunners used parts of the German fighter and their own parachute harnesses in an attempt to keep the tail from ripping off and the two sides of the fuselage from splitting apart. While the crew was trying to keep the bomber from coming apart, 
the pilot continued on his bomb run and released his bombs over the target. When the bomb bay doors were opened, the wind turbulence was so great that it blew one of the waste gunners into the broken tail section. It took several minutes and four crew members to pass him ropes from parachutes and haul him back into the forward part of the plane. When they tried to do the same for the tail gunner, the tail began flapping so hard that it was going to break off. The weight of the gunner was adding some stability to the tail section, so he went back to his position. The turn back towards England had to be very slow to keep the tail from twisting off. They actually covered almost 70 miles to make the turn home. The bomber was so badly damaged that it was losing altitude and speed and was soon alone in the sky. For a brief time, two more ME-109 German fighters attacked the All-American. Despite the extensive damage, all of the machine gunners were able to respond to these attacks and soon drove off the fighters. The two waste gunners stood up with their heads sticking out through the hole in the top of the fuselage to aim and fire their machine guns. The tail gunner had to shoot in short bursts because the recoil was actually causing the plane to turn. Allied P-51 fighters intercepted the All-American as it crossed over the channel and took one of the pictures shown. They also radioed to the base describing that the empennage was waving like a fishtail and that the plane would not make it and to send out boats to rescue the crew when they bailed out. The fighter stayed with the fortress taking hand signals from Lieutenant Bragg and relaying them to the base. Lieutenant Bragg signalled that five parachutes and the spare had been used, so five of the crew could not bail out. He made the decision that if they could not bail out safely, then he would stay with the plane and land it. Two and a half hours after being hit, the aircraft made its final turn to line up with the runway while it was still over 40 miles away. It descended into an emergency landing and a normal rollout on its landing gear. When the ambulance pulled alongside, it was waved off because not a single member of the crew had been injured. No one could believe that the aircraft could still fly in such a condition. The fortress sat placidly until all the crew exited through the door in the fuselage and the tail gunner had climbed down a ladder, at which time the entire rear section of the aircraft collapsed onto the ground. The rugged old bird had done its job. And if you visit the show notes at www.origins.info and click on the link to this article in episode 167 of the Origins podcast show notes, there are some really good photographs of the damage to the aircraft. Quite interesting and quite amazing that the plane actually made it back when you look at them. Now this next story may not be the most palatable topic, but it's interesting in its own unusual way. 
from the atlasobscura.com website. The 19th century night soil men who carted away America's waste. Cities used to be literally full of crap. And it's by a D. Braun. On a summer day in 1873, a cart stood on 6th Avenue in New York City, filled to the brink with raw human waste. The cart was uncovered, its contents exposed to the air and to passers-by who retched and gagged as they scurried away. Excrement dripped off the sides of the cart, and the sidewalks and gutters were smeared with the stuff. The stench was so strong that it could be smelled for more than a block away. It was just another day in pre-sewer America. Before municipal sewer systems, excrete are piled up in the privies of people's homes, essentially a deep hole in the ground. But these poop storage units did not have unlimited capacity. When the privies were eventually filled, that's when the night soil men were called in. Night soil was the name euphemistically given to human waste because it was removed from privies under the cloak of darkness, so that polite society would be spared from confronting its own faeces as the men carted the crap away, leaving a trail of stench in their wake. Each year in cities across the country, thousands of carts brimming with excrement rattled through the night streets. This was an antiquated solution to a modern problem. America's cities were full of crap. As cities grew larger and denser in the 19th century, the paltry urban infrastructure could not handle the sheer tonnage of human waste its residents were producing. New York was the dirtiest city of them all. In 1844, it was estimated that Manhattanites alone produced nearly 800,000 cubic feet of excrement. That's enough poop to fill the trunks of about 53,000 mid-sized cars. In New York, the reeking loads were sometimes carted off to country farms to be used as fertiliser. But more often they were hauled through the night to a designated pier and dumped into the Hudson or East Rivers, and sometimes mistakenly onto the private boats below, creating a stinking, festering shoreline. The waste would settle into the slips, and city workers would periodically have to dredge the excrement so that boats could actually dock. In Washington, D.C., one of the city's dumping grounds was a field near the White House, where a marsh of Washingtonian waste putrefied under the President's nose. This suggests that this may have been a contributing factor to President Harrison's untimely death in 1841, since the White House water source was a mere seven blocks downstream. Night soil collection was big business, Hundreds of men were employed in cities, mostly African Americans and immigrants, who were either independent entrepreneurs or employees of city contractors. The nightmen, with their rude carts, were considered a nuisance at best. Their night work also left them vulnerable to hoodlums, who sometimes stoned the men and occasionally shot their horses. At least the pay was decent, even if the work was not. 
The night soil men used rudimentary long-handled dippers or buckets to scoop the mephitic waste into barrels or tanks on a wagon. The typical privy vault had to be emptied and cleaned two to three times a year. And even as toilets began to replace outhouses towards the end of the century, there was still much work to be done as most cities had not yet built enough sewer pipes to connect every house. By 1880, two-thirds of flush toilets still emptied into backyard cesspools, which had to be cleaned sometimes as often as every ten days to keep from overflowing. An overflowing privy was a sight to behold. In James D. McCabe's 1882 account of New York street life, he describes one man's yard in which the privy's contents drained down into a street sewer, forming a miniature and loathsome Niagara of night soil. The cascading sewage flowed right by the window, so that a man sitting on a chair at the window would not only have the odour, but also the view of this loathsome matter circulating at his feet in the pool below. In addition to the assault on human senses, this system had disastrous public health consequences. Leaky cesspools and overflowing privies created fetid pools of standing water that leached into the soil and contaminated local water wells. This fueled cholera epidemics well into the 19th century, such as the 1849 outbreak, which claimed 5,000 lives in New York City alone. By the mid to late 19th century, new understandings about how human waste carried disease compelled cities to crack down on night soil disposal methods. Municipalities doled out stiff fines to nightmen who lazily dumped their loads in the street as opposed to a sanctioned spot. Technology helped too. In 1873, New York contracted the Manhattan Odorless Excavating Company to remove all night soil with its state-of-the-art pumping machines and airtight tanks that could be employed at any hour. Yet even these modern contraptions proved ineffective for some very stubborn privies that still had to be evacuated by hand. But no number of intrepid men or fancy contraptions could truly solve the overwhelming human waste problem that was infecting America's cities. There was only one solution. Sewers. Starting in the mid-1800s, cities began the slow and arduous task of constructing municipal sewer systems. The pace picked up in earnest late in the century. By the early 1890s, New York and Brooklyn had built 844 miles of sewers. Chicago had 525 and Philadelphia had 376. Some 25 years later, New York City was no longer even keeping track of the number of privies being cleaned. The era of the night soil men had come to an end. And I wonder how many of you can't believe I did that article without any reference to a shitty joke or the like. And from the telegraph.co.uk website... Horses had stripes like zebras until humans broke them in, scientists say. 
Nature experts have revealed that most horses and ponies resembled zebras with stripes until man changed their colour by taming them. They lost their wild camouflage, pale hair with zebra-like dark stripes known as the dun pattern after they were domesticated by humans. Researchers said mankind had a direct impact after the first horses were broken in to run, work or be ridden. An international team of scientists has discovered what causes the dun pattern and why it is lost in most horses. Pale hair colour in dun horses provides camouflage. Horses in the wild are safer from attack by predators like lions and tigers because they are less conspicuous. In contrast, domestic horses, as well as many other domestic animals, have been selected over many generations to be more conspicuous, more appealing, or simply different than the wild type. Most dun horses have a dark stripe along their back and often show zebra-like leg stripes. But the majority of domestic horses are non-dun and show a more intense pigmentation that is uniformly distributed. The new study published in Nature Genetics shows non-dun horses carry one of two mutations in a gene called TBX3 that cause the gene to be expressed at lower levels in the skin. In dun horses the protein is expressed in the hair bulb where it blocks pigment production, leading to hairs that are pigmented only on one side of the hair shaft. This causes the dilute appearance of the dun horse's coat. By comparing modern horse DNA with that of ancient horses going back over 40,000 years, the researchers said one of the non-done mutations was already present in the latter and was likely selected by humans during domestication. Unlike the hair of most well-studied mammals, the coloured hairs from done horses are not evenly pigmented the whole way around. Freya Imsland, a PhD student from Uppsala University in Sweden, said the dun coat colour in horses is characterised by pigmentary dilution affecting most of the body hair, leaving areas with undiluted pigment in a variable pattern, with the most common feature being a dark stripe. This stripe and other dun pattern elements are termed primitive markings. Most domestic horses are non-dun, with little or no pigment dilution and faint or absent dorsal stripe. The dun coat colour is presumed to be wild type, as the Travelsky's horse, a close relative of the ancestor of domestic horses, exhibits dun colour, as do other wild horses. The Kayang, Onaga and African wild ass, as well as the quagga, are now extinct subspecies of plains zebra. She said the distribution of the dun coat and the reduced pigment intensity of dun horses suggest that dun colouring serves an important camouflage role in horses. Hairs from the dark areas of dun horses are in contrast intensely pigmented all around each individual hair, she said. In spite of scientists having studied hair pigmentation in detail for a very long time, this kind of pigmentation is novel to science and quite unlike that seen in rodents, primates and carnivores. Previous studies in humans and laboratory mice show TBX3 controls several critical processes in development that affects bones, breast tissue and the heart. 
The study indicates the non-done variant occurred recently, most likely after domestication. And from the smithsonianmag.com website. An article by Aaron Blakemore. The Nazis plan to bomb Britain with forged banknotes. But Operation Bernhard never made it rain. The Second World War may have been the bloodiest war. But it also could be considered the weirdest A conflict full of foiled plans to do everything from kidnap the Pope and lock him up inside a castle, to strap miniature bombs on bats and drop them on Japanese cities. Add one to the strange but true list, as Richard Dunley blogs for Britain's National Archives. The Nazis planned to bomb Britain with clouds of forged banknotes. Of course the idea wasn't intended to make it rain for English citizens, Rather, writes Dunley, it was designed to destabilise the British economy. But the plot was uncovered when Alfred Neuox, a German intelligence officer, was captured and interrogated in 1944, Dunley writes. Neuox was already infamous before his capture. Five years earlier, he had organised and carried out the so-called Gleiwitz incident seizing a Polish radio station and transmitting an anti-German speech. Along with other supposedly anti-German events orchestrated by the Germans themselves, the incident gave Germany an excuse to invade Poland and World War II was set into motion. Neuox told his interrogators that he was in charge of spearheading a campaign called Operation Bernhard, designed to undermine the British economy. Neuox and other Nazis used 140 Jewish prisoners at Sachsenhausen concentration camp who they trained to forge British banknotes. They even contracted with a special factory to provide the proper paper for British notes. But CIA historian Kevin Ruffner writes that wartime shortages meant that only about 10% of the 134 million British pounds produced by the forgers was good enough to be circulated. The instructions came from Hitler himself, who wanted to drop huge quantities of forged banknotes from German aircraft, writes Dunley. Hitler apparently hoped that the scheme would dangerously inflate the British wartime economy and weaken Great Britain, making it an easier target for a German invasion. The Nazis also planned to counterfeit American dollars, with the hopes of doing the same across the Atlantic to the United States. Of course, that plot never became real, though Germany did use some of the forged money to import supplies. Neuox and his team had to move their top-secret forgery centre from camp to camp during the rest of the war. Finally, at the end of the war, desperate Nazis burned huge amounts of British currency and dumped some of it in a remote Austrian lake. Years later, some of the money was found at the bottom of Lake Toplitz and was incinerated by British authorities. The forged money may not have done its job, but England didn't take any chances. 
After the war, the Bank of England withdrew all notes with a value of more than £5 as soon as it had designed and printed new paper money. For a scheme that didn't work, Operation Burn Hard sure affected plenty of people and will go down in history as one of wartime's most over-the-top secret plots. From the todayifoundout.com website, an article by Matt Blitz. The story of Strawberry Fields, Forever. The Beatles' 1967 hit Strawberry Fields Forever has long been considered one of the greatest pop songs ever recorded. Released in February of that year as a double A-side single along with Penny Lane, the song peaked at number 8 on the US Billboard charts. The Turtles' Happy Together was number 1 that week. In 2011, Rolling Stone named it the band's third greatest song and the 76th greatest song ever written. Written by John Lennon, it is a true masterpiece, but what it isn't is a song about fields full of strawberries. Reading the lyrics, it's clear that the song isn't as happy-go-lucky as the melody might suggest. The song is more about Lennon's insecurities and his tough childhood. The title of the song refers to the Salvation Army Ran Girls Orphanage, dreamily called Strawberry Field, that Lennon lived near growing up in Liverpool. Here's the real story behind the song, Strawberry Fields, Forever. The Beatles were going through a rough patch when they all splintered off in the summer of 1966, immediately following what would be their last US live performance at San Francisco's Candlestick Park. The Fab Four would eventually reunite for six more albums and one legendary unannounced rooftop live performance. But that wasn't known in the summer of 66. For his part, Lennon made his way to Almeria, Spain, to star in the black comedy How I Won the War. With long waits between shooting scenes, Lennon had plenty of time to write. In six weeks, he had a working version of the song that would come to define the Beatles' second act. John Lennon's childhood wasn't particularly happy. When he was a baby, his banjo-playing father Alf was rarely home and often away at sea as a merchant. 
Tired of his travels, John's mother Julia fell in love with another man and got pregnant with John's half-sister. This caused a tremendous rift in the Lennon family, with Julia's sister Mimi calling social services twice on her own sister for raising John in what she called an unfit home. Eventually, social services handed John's care over to Aunt Mimi, and he spent a large portion of his childhood at his aunt's suburban Liverpool home in a town called Woolton. The house is now part of UK's National Trust as a museum. John's relationships with his parents after that were tragic. He wouldn't see his father again for over two decades. John's mother was hit and killed by a speeding car while crossing a road when John was only 17. According to Cynthia Lennon, John's first wife, while Aunt Mimi did care for John, she was not a woman for cuddles and praise. Ruling with an iron fist, John was expected to be obedient, well-behaved and groomed. Later, biographers would write that he had a hard time making friends. It's little wonder that John Lennon had a rebellious streak and would often go in secret to play in the gardens of his next-door neighbour, the girls' orphanage, Strawberry Field. The history of Strawberry Field dates back to 1870, when the property was owned by a wealthy English shipowner named George Warren. On the site he built a giant Gothic mansion that was in line with England's Victorian era, complete with an iron-wrought gate, gardens and flowers. In 1927, another wealthy ship magnate named Alexander C. Mitchell purchased the mansion and property. Seven years later, Mitchell's widow sold it to the Salvation Army. On July 7, 1936, the home was opened as an orphanage for up to 40 girls. Two decades later, boys would be allowed in, but throughout most of John's childhood, Strawberry Field was an all-girls orphanage. Years later, interviews would reveal the influence this foreboding, mysterious place had on Lennon's writing. In a 1968 Rolling Stone interview, Lennon said that he was trying to write about Liverpool and had visions of Strawberry Fields, because Strawberry Fields is just anywhere you want to go. Note that the song title is Strawberry Fields, but the actual place is called Strawberry Field. Lennon would later admit that this was a stylistic choice. Fields sounded simply better than field. Lennon also often alluded to how Strawberry Field was a representative of his childhood. On the outside foreboding, but once he climbed over the wall, full of wild flowers and secretive gardens. It's also thought that he greatly identified with the orphans who lived there, considering that he felt abandoned by his parents. In 1980 he explained his childhood thinking, There was something wrong with me. I thought, because I seemed to see things other people didn't see. When John Lennon brought the song to the band in November of 1966, it was met with awe. Engineer Jeff Emmerich recalled to Rolling Stone that fateful moment. There was a moment of stunned silence, broken by Paul, who in a quiet, respectful tone said simply, That is absolutely brilliant. Over about a month, the band tinkered and recorded the song. It is widely thought of as the most complicated recording the Beatles ever did, 
When it was released in February of 1967, it was exactly what McCartney said when he first heard the song John Lennon named after a Liverpool girls' orphanage. Brilliant. Today, Strawberry Field is in a state of disrepair despite continuing to be a tourist attraction for Beatle fanatics. In 2005, after nearly 70 years as an orphanage, it closed down and all the remaining children were transferred to foster families. While many of the original buildings and structures were torn down in the 1970s, a few still remained, including the iconic red Victorian-era Strawberry Field gates until 2001. The gates, which dated back to Warren, were put into storage and replaced with replicas, leaving many fans and tour guides who rely on Beatle-related income upset. Plans were announced in 2014 to turn the site into a training centre for people with learning difficulties, along with a museum and artefacts dedicated to the influence this place had on the Beatles and John Lennon. However, as of this writing, Strawberry Field remains abandoned and mostly decrepit. And just when you thought the podcast couldn't bring anything up more disgusting than the night soil workers of America. From the listverse.com 10 horrifying medical cases that make you glad you didn't live in the past. And this is written by Morris M. The past was far more disgusting than most of us realise. We've told you before about Pompeii's trash can streets, medieval London's otherworldly stink, and the appalling hygiene of the 18th century. But even these horrors have nothing on the various parasites and diseases of the past. Number 10. Exploding Teeth Remember the last time you had a bad toothache? Awful, wasn't it? Now imagine that pain roughly 100 times worst. It's so bad, in fact, that you lose touch with reality and start acting like a rabbit dog. And your dentist has no way to help you. That was the sort of toothache that a small number of patients encountered in the early 19th and 20th centuries. Luckily, the infected teeth had a simple method for curing themselves. They exploded. In 1817, Reverend D.A. from Springfield suffered a toothache so bad that it made him act like an enraged animal, banging his head against the ground and biting a fence post to relieve his agony. But the pain kept getting worse. One morning the Reverend's wife heard a crack like a gunshot. Shortly after, her husband walked in and declared himself cured. His tooth had just exploded, sending calcium fragments flying across the room. There are a handful of similar cases on record, although the patient usually felt better after the infected tooth burst, 
the explosion could be damaging in itself. In 1871, one woman was only knocked off her feet by the blast, which was so loud that she briefly went deaf. Cases of exploding teeth mysteriously stopped in the 1920s. It's now thought that the mixture of metals used in old-time fillings may have caused cavities to occasionally fill with hydrogen, eventually leading to a miniature explosion. Number 9. Gigantic and painful intestinal worms. Intestinal worms like tapeworms still affect people today, but these parasites are wimps compared to some worms observed in the 18th century. In 1782, an article in Medical Essays and Observations reported on a young man who passed a worm half a metre long and four centimetres thick. By passed, we mean that he had to get a friend to help him pull it out of his rear end. Made up of earthworm-like joints and full of dark, sticky blood, the worm was like something out of a horror movie. It had a jaw like a duck's bill, was dark chocolate in colour, and had apparently been burrowing in the poor guy's intestines for days. As it moved, it caused him excruciating pain. Whatever this monster was, it wasn't a tapeworm. A similar story from the 16th century is just as bad. Italian goldsmith Buenavito Cellini recorded in his autobiography that he once vomited a worm that was 13 centimetres long and covered with long, dark hairs. No one had any idea what the heck it was. 8. Dancing Plagues Mass hysteria is when a group of people start doing something absurd on a grand scale with no rational explanation. Famous examples include the Luden Possessions and the Salem Witch Trials. At certain times in history, mass hysteria has also intersected with medicine to create creepy, inexplicable plagues. One of the creepiest may be the Dancing Plague of 1518. The plague began one hot July in Strasbourg, when a woman began dancing in the street and didn't stop. She was still dancing days later, apparently no longer in control of her body. At that point things got weird. At least 100 other people started dancing and quickly discovered that they couldn't stop either. According to old eyewitness accounts, the victims appeared to be terrified and begged those around them to make them stop dancing. Within a few short days, people were literally dancing themselves to death. Luckily the town had a bizarre but effective solution. It was decided that the plague's victims just needed to dance the compulsion out of their systems. Halls and stages were set up for dancing and musicians were hired to play 24-7. By September of that year, the dancers, whose number had swollen to 400, finally tired themselves out. The plague was over. Although this was the last dancing plague in European history, it wasn't the first. There had been at least ten beforehand. In 1374, one of them engulfed what is now Belgium, Luxembourg and most of northern France. Number 7. Bladder Beetles There are certain things that no man ever wants to happen to him. Hearing his doctor say the words prostate cancer is one of them. 
Another is having a living creature crawl out of the end of his penis. For one unfortunate man in 1838, that's exactly what happened. As reported in American Journal of the Medical Sciences, the 23-year-old victim was suffering from a urinary tract infection. After days of urinating blood and pus, he found himself unable to pee. His agony was so great that doctors urgently sent for a catheter. Before it could get there, the problem sorted itself out in the worst possible way. A pea-sized object popped out of the guy's penis, followed by a heavy discharge of pus and urine. When the doctors examined the blockage, they discovered that it was a living beetle. Terrifyingly, such cases were not unusual at the time. The former BBC journalist Thomas Morris has covered many of them on his gruesome blog. Apparently, one young boy peed out 16 slugs. Number 6. Sleepy Sickness If you were to be mysteriously whisked back to 1918, there's one disease that you'd probably try to avoid above all others. That was the year that the Spanish flu blasted its way across the globe, killing up to 50 million people, over twice as many as World War I. But that pandemic overshadowed one that was just as inexplicable and potentially freakier. Although it was far less deadly than the Spanish flu, killing only one million people, sleepy sickness was horrifying. Officially known as a cephalitis lethargica, scientists now believe that it was a reaction to a rare form of streptococcus bacteria. At the time, though, nobody knew what was happening. All they knew was that people were starting to fall asleep like they had narcolepsy. And some of them never woke up. But they didn't die. Some sufferers lapped into coma-like states, unable to control their bodies and unable to wake up. Shunted into medical units, they still showed signs of brain activity, but they didn't respond to stimuli. Millions of people worldwide suffered this horrendous fate, although some were awakened with drug treatments in 1969. Many slipped back into their sleeping state after only a few weeks. Scarily, the disease hasn't entirely vanished. The odd case still crops up today, although another major outbreak seems extremely unlikely. Now here's one to make your skin crawl. 5. Eye spiders. The words eye spiders alone are enough to give a significant number of people nightmares. Unfortunately for any arachnophobes reading this, the story behind the headline is even worse. In 1840, Dr. Lopez of Alabama was called out on a gruesome case in Charleston. The previous night, his patient had felt something drop onto her face while sleeping. The next morning, she woke up with a hideously swollen eye. When the eye was examined, a mucus-covered spider was found living in the cavity. Incredibly, the horror story was only just beginning. A few days later, Dr. Lopez was called to see the woman again. More spiders had been discovered in her eye socket. Over the next few weeks, Dr. Lopez visited her every morning. Each time he extracted a tiny, mucus-coated spider from inside her eye. After two months of this, 
Locals were convinced that the original spider had laid an egg sac behind her eyeball, causing this terrifying condition. We've got good news for all you readers who are not trying to vomit. As Dr. Lopez soon realised, such a thing is basically impossible. It turned out that the woman was mentally ill and had been placing the spiders in her eye each morning, possibly as a means of getting attention. Still, the 19th century was a fertile time for extracting animals from bodies. On his blog, Thomas Morris records the stories of a boy who vomited millipedes and another person who supposedly had a live mouse extracted from his intestine. Number 4. Ice Age Superbugs Antibiotic-resistant bugs are a potential nightmare. Bacteria that can shrug off treatments have been around since 1947 and are growing in number. Commonly called superbugs, these Darwinian monsters could be what finally kills off modern humans. Yet recent research has shown that these superbugs might not be so modern after all. There is evidence that they spent their formative years in what is now Canada, killing off our ancestors during the last Ice Age. In 2011, Scientific American reported that antibiotic-resistant superbugs had been found buried deep in the ice outside Dawson City, Yukon. These tiny killers were at least 30,000 years old and hadn't seen sunlight in millennia. Thousands of years before we humans figured out antibiotics, actinobacteria had set up a defence system to stop us from killing them. Of course, this made no difference to our Ice Age ancestors. Bugs killed them swiftly, whether they were resistant to antibiotics or not. But if you ever go back in time via a DeLorean or a TARDIS, you might want to avoid prehistoric Canada. Number 3. Laughing Plagues The dancing plague may have occurred centuries ago, but you don't have to go too far back to find creepy instances of mass hysteria. In modern-day Tanzania, you would only need to take a time machine back to 1962, when the mainland was still called Tanganyika. That was the year that the laughing epidemic hit. One day, people suddenly started laughing. Months later, they still hadn't stopped. Like the dancing plague, the laughter epidemic was creepy because those affected apparently didn't want to be laughing. People laughed so hard that they injured themselves. Entire schools were shut down and whole villages were quarantined. When the plague vanished months later, 1,000 people had laughed themselves into illness. Perhaps the creepiest part is how the symptoms were described. Those affected said it felt like things were moving about in their heads and that they were being controlled by an alien force. However, just about every expert in the world now chalks up the whole thing to mass hysteria. Oh, and this one's charming. Number two, vomiting up a fetus. In 1835... Dr. Ardoin, a French doctor living in Greece, recorded that a young boy named Demetrius Stamatelli had vomited up a fetus. This already disgusting sentence gets even worse when you realise that the dead baby spewed by Demetrius was probably his own twin. Parasitic twins occur when one twin absorbs the other in the womb. 
Usually, the absorbed twin goes unnoticed until death. Occasionally, it has to be surgically removed if it starts to cause problems. The case in the 1830s Greece is the only time on record that someone apparently vomited their twin. The details of the case are utterly gruesome. Demetrius had abdominal pains so bad that he was at death's door. It was only after a horrendous vomiting fit that his symptoms abated, after the dead twin was spewed out of his mouth. Apparently, it had been attached to the boy by some kind of umbilical cord. Dr. Ardoin seems to find this horror show utterly fascinating. And finally, number one, the Plague of Athens. Of all the gruesome and mysterious plagues that have racked human civilization over the centuries, none is more gruesome or mysterious than the Plague of Athens. Between 430 and 426 BC, the cradle of democracy was transformed from a serene place of ancient wisdom into a grand showcase of gore. According to the only surviving eyewitness account, as related by Thucydides, those affected saw their eyeballs turn red, their tongues become bloody, their throats decay, and horrible ulcers pop up all over their bodies. And if that wasn't enough, death typically came after a horrendous bout of diarrhoea. It is estimated that up to two-thirds of the Athenian population died this way, including some of the city-state's greatest leaders and generals. Scarily, we're still not sure what caused it. Many scientists believe that the Plague of Athens could be the earliest known Ebola outbreak. Yet that interpretation comes with issues, because there was no other recorded outbreak between 426 BC and the 1970s. Others have suggested cholera, bubonic plague, typhoid, and even measles. Well, good friends, that concludes episode 167 of the Origins podcast. I know it's been a long time coming, but I get so many more listeners that listen to the Mysteries Abound podcast, I'm basically catering for demand. The bandwidth for the podcast is provided by TalkShoe at talkshoe.com. The show notes are held at the Origins podcast website, origins.info. We have a Facebook page as well, facebook.com forward slash Paul Rexy. So thank you everyone for listening to the Origins podcast and until next time, this is Paul saying bye for now and keep well everyone.
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.